Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder and principal facilitator for Learning That Transfers. And I'm Trevor Elio, English language arts lead for Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through requiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those play out in a variety of settings. You can find out more about our work, including our online courses and other professional learning offerings at learningthattransfers.com. Welcome to a special combined episode of Conceptually Speaking. This week, Kayla and I linked up with Charles Williams, host of the Counter Narrative Podcast and the KA Principal in the Greater Chicago area. Our dialogue is a free-flowing conversation, exploring everything from seeking our educational purpose in turbulent times, to the importance of asset-based instruction, to the hit show Abbott Elementary. It was a beautiful reminder that shared dialogue with other educators with common goals and values can be sustaining and motivating. We hope you leave this episode with similar feelings. Hello and welcome to normally I would say the Counter Narrative Podcast, but the, there are two shows. <laughs> there are two shows today. Every once in a while, there are opportunities for podcasters to come together and to do like the podcast, right? And that's that's what this episode <laughs> is. And so today, uh, I get to connect with two other amazing podcasters. Uh, so my name, for those of you on the other side, my name is Charles Williams. I am the host of the Counter Narrative Podcast. Welcome to my half, I guess, of the show. Trevor, Kayla, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing great, Charles. So um, for, for those of you on the other other end of the podcast, I am uh, Trevor Gallio. I am one of the co-hosts of the Conceptually Speaking podcast. Um, and, you know, we reached out and connected with Charles about having a sort of combined episode. And I am joined by um, one of my co-authors, one of our co-hosts, Kayla Duncan. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. So the conceit of the episode is kind of combining our two different approaches. So in Conceptually Speaking, we always try to think about what are key or important concepts that um, structure or undergird any field, discipline, or situation. And we use those as a way to make sense of complex situations or contexts. And um, in this case, um, education, broadly speaking, which is a very complex context for us to explore. And um, bringing in Charles' side of the counter-narrative podcast, we're going to be thinking about what are what are concepts that can help us flip the script and change the story about the way that we view education um, in the time of, you know, coronavirus, in the time of all of the social justice struggles going on. How can we think differently about education in a way that is more asset-based and, and positive? Yeah. And, and I love the idea that of blending these two, right? Saying, hey, what are the, the these focus points that we can talk about as we are like you said, right, challenging the narrative, flipping that script. And so, um, you know, if you're okay, we could just launch into one of them. Let's do it. All right, let, let, let's jump in. So I, I I wanted to, you know, right before the show started, we kind of went through our own. And so I know one of the things that we mentioned was purpose. And I think there's an alignment there. So if, you, if you're okay, you know, I, I think before we do any of the work, right, we're, we're I always talk about the very first thing that you have to do is figure out who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it, your purpose. And so as we are launching into education, that's, I think, one of the very first things that we have to figure out. Why am I in this? And so I don't know if you guys are familiar. There's a great educator, Brandon Beck, who wrote Unlocking Unlimited Potential. 
Um, but I tell this story because in his book, he has a formula for writing your purpose. And hmm. I, I think it's a great thing because, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, hey, what are you doing? Like, why are you in education? And you're like, uh, well, you like you should be able to you should be able to put it together. And so he creates kind of this framework. And I know I've done it myself. I've done it with my staff. I've done it with my, my students even saying, why, why are you doing this? Why are you here? What is your purpose in this world? Um, and then putting it out there because, you know, once you put it out there, it, it becomes real. People could hold you accountable. People may challenge it, but that grounds you in everything that you're doing. And so if we are talking about changing education, we have to first understand where we stand. So I, I'm glad that we were in alignment with that one. Absolutely. It makes me, my, one of my favorite words is intentionality. And I feel like when you know your purpose, you can be more intentional on your way forward and what you're thinking about. And when I think about change in education, especially right now when there are just so many competing initiatives, we still have a pandemic going on. We have these global events happening that if we can take a step back and remember our purpose and at a district level, at a school level or at a personal level, then we can be intentional with the steps we're taking both for ourselves and for our students to move forward in education. And I think the struggle comes down to, I feel like if you were to ask most teachers if they had a clear vision for what their purpose is or you know why they're in education, they would say yes. But to your point, Charles, could they articulate that in the moment? Mm-hmm. Perhaps not. And I think even more strikingly and even in a more problematic way, um, I think that if you were to look at if oftentimes our, our actions as educators always are aligned to our purpose. I don't always know um, if that's the case. And I think a lot of that comes down to some of the systemic and structural forces and barriers that teachers come up against. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do feel like it's so easy to just get trapped up in the momentum of being in a classroom, teaching students, tracking scores or grades and all of these things that we've been told, you know, here's what your goal is to increase scores to, you know, um, you know, help students get grade A, B, C, D, et cetera. And it, it's really, I think it's, it's just such a easy mistake to make for us to lose track of that purpose. And there've been a lot of conversations I've had with teachers where I'll ask them, you know, like, what's the purpose of like, even just your discipline? Like, what's the purpose of being an English language arts teacher? And a lot of times they like, they, like they freeze up because there isn't space left oftentimes for teachers to explore that and to reconnect with those reasons that got them into the profession in the first place. The asking the purpose, that's a a strategy that we have found has been helpful um, for some teachers to even reconnect with their purpose or kind of unify around a shared purpose is by asking them, what's the purpose, role, and significance of what you're teaching and what you're doing? And can you put that into kid-friendly language or even have your students help you come up with it? And we found that uniting around that kind of common vision and purpose can kind of reset when things have been stressful in education and help a team or a department even um, move forward together because they do have that shared purpose. Yeah we, yeah, we did something in my staff along that same line. Like we sat down and we said, OK, well, like th- there's the mission statement, right? The mm-hmm. thing that every school plasters on the wall and it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's there. And but we started saying, well, what are our kind of collective commitments like mm-hmm. what is important to us what is the work that we're doing and so we like we narrowed them down to the four and we this was over a series of meetings that we had and we got to a point where I said okay what I want you to do on, on these little post-it notes I gave everybody a pack of post-it notes right and, and I asked them I said on, on an average day 
what are the things that you do, right? I just want you to write down, fill out as many post-its as you want. And so they're, they're sitting there and they're filling them out, filling them out, filling them out. And I said, now I want you to create three categories. And, and one, I want you to write, you know, put the post-it note. Is it aligned to the mission, right? Our collective purpose, is it aligned to that? In the middle, is it aligned to, you know, aligned to it and important, right? And if not, then, you know, put them on the side. So we, they kind of had these post-its all over the place. And so my, my question was that if you're doing something that is important, but not aligned with the mission, let's have a conversation around that. Like, why, why don't you feel it's aligned? Maybe it is, and we just don't understand it. Or maybe we need to reconsider it, right? And, the, and then there was all the busyness on the outside. Like, it's not important. It's not aligned. And how much time are we spending doing things just because, and so I think, like you said, right, we, we get so bogged down with doing school, right, that we that we're just going through the motions. And then we're, we're surprised when we look up and we're, we're drained and we're exhausted and we're tired and our capacities are spent. And well, yeah, when, when you're spending so much time doing other things, that's my teachers. Right. I think there's a, a commonality when you're walking through the hallways. Like, hey, how's it going? Busy. Right. It's great to be busy. Like, yeah, we're all busy. But are we mm-hmm. busy doing the right things? And that's mm-hmm. what I continue to say. Like, yeah, you're busy and I'm busy, but are we doing the right things? And so constantly coming back to that 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 purpose, that intentionality and saying, am I doing what needs to be done? Because otherwise we're, we're just continuing that, uh, I guess, that motion, right? We're, we're maintaining the status quo. Yeah. And it, I was just quickly trying to Google who who was it who coined this phrase, but um couldn't find it on a quick search, but it's the grammar of schooling that um, is the, the phrase that I've heard that I really like. And we are so deeply entwined with the grammar of schooling, like you were saying, that busyness mm-hmm. of doing the actions of school without considering, you know, what is the purpose of education in a deeper sense. And I think that that is why it is so challenging to ensure that our actions are aligned with what we do when it comes to our purpose, because even if we are able to find our own sort of purpose, in like a, you know, existential way as a teacher to, you know, guide children to a love of learning and to, um, you know, help them fall in love with our discipline. It's so hard to know what the world is going to look like tomorrow. Um, figuring out what the purpose of education is, I think, is much more challenging and difficult than ever before, because we live in a world that is changing and evolving so rapidly you know, even if you do a good job transporting information that you have as the expert in the room to students, that's not enough. And going to that idea of being asset based as we live in an increasingly um, multicultural and diverse and interconnected and globalized world, the knowledge that you have as a teacher might not only be unhelpful, it might be potentially limited, it might be conceived in ways that can have it become oppressive. And it's just going to another one of my concepts. It's so complex when we think about what is the purpose of education and what is our goal as a teacher. And I think that it's hard when so much of being a teacher has been, you know, filling students up with knowledge that you have as a teacher. And that script has flipped. And we're beginning to realize the limitations of that model and the damaging effects of that model in some instances. So what does it look like to be a teacher in a world where we are having to wrestle with all these complexities? Yeah, I was actually going to, and it's interesting, right? As a whole, Because I was like, oh, this is a great segue. I wanted to ask Halo. And then it's like, oh, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Like, 
if, if our purposes, and I think most educators will talk about like, I'm here for all students, right? That's, that's yeah. a common phrase for sure. in, in all these mission statements and vision statements. Like I'm here for everyone. And yet our behaviors or actions aren't aligned with that. And so, mm. you know, I, when Kayla said asset-based, right? I think so many times in, especially in marginalized populations, we have this deficit mindset, what they don't have, they don't, they don't, they don't. And that is really the reason I launched my podcast because I'm so sick and tired of hearing what can't happen, what they don't do. Like, can, can we start thinking about the strengths that people bring in? And so I, I was hoping I was going to ask you, Kayla, like, I know you brought the asset based concept into this conversation. So I, I was curious, you know, to hear a little more about what, what was driving that thought. Absolutely. So I it's a pet peeve of mine. I feel like I'm a pretty mellow person. It's I don't like have extreme emotions one way or the other, but it's one of the one things that can just makes my blood boil is my kids can't do that. Mm. Or maybe these kids, but like that mm. my kids can't, I just instantly, it, it bothers me. And so a lot of work that I do in my district um, is with personalized learning and helping like find student centered strategies and ways to support kids. And so I believe all students can learn. And I think that it's our job as educators to help students see what they bring into the table and then help find ways to get them to where their potential is to what our learning outcomes are, whatever we're trying to achieve. And so for me, asset base is exactly what you said. It's every student comes in with strengths. Everyone's every student comes in with these backgrounds and these experiences that can contribute to the culture of the classroom. It can contribute to the discussions that we're having. And so instead of seeing it as, Oh, they missed this much school or, oh, they came from this other place. They haven't learned these things. What do they have? And unfortunately, I feel like our system, especially when you get to um, grades, grades, like essentially it's, you can only go down, you know, if you're on the standard zero to 100 scale, our system is set up to not be asset based. It's set up to see yourself slowly fail or just make sure you do everything you can to stay um, like a survival of the fittest thing to keep up at the the top with an A. And so I just think that if we can flip that somehow, even beyond grades, but seeing that every student is coming in with a story, with something to share and something worthwhile and seeing here's what you bring and here's where we're moving forward. So what they have as a starting point versus a detriment to their learning experience, then it would just be a better a situation for, for everyone. It would help the environment, help the culture, it helps students learn more because they see they have a place. And instead of only one or two students or a small group of students being different, everyone could be different and different is good. So um, I'm in a critical literacy class right now um, in my graduate program. And it's been making me think about asset-based instruction and asset-based framings of, of education in such in a, in a very like, different and, and, and deep way um, in that one of the questions that we have to kind of explore is who gets to decide what counts as knowledge. So when we talk about having like an asset based approach, um, it's a, a reminder that the way that we define and conceptualize what knowledge is in education is very narrow mm-hmm. and it's informed by cultural and um, class oriented ideas about like what one should know or what one needs to know. And that can really, um, in very subtle ways and in very unconscious ways, 
create those deficit mindsets when it comes to teachers, where even teachers, you know, I would assume that most teachers are like, no, like I'm, I'm helping, you know, the student or I'm giving them this knowledge that they need or, or they may not have it yet, but it's okay through me, they will get that knowledge as opposed to recognizing and affirming that knowledge that students are bringing with them. Um, and one of the things that I'm really interested in as an English language arts um, teacher, and somebody kind of like exploring the nature of literacy, is this idea that like within English language arts, there are certain um, patterns of communication, there's certain types of knowledge, there's certain um, habits of discourse that sort of like shape what it means to be like an, an English major, literary scholar, journalist, whatever. Um, but, you know, I have students that like love anime and I have students that um, love, you know, hip hop music and I have students that love sports and TV and, you know, the Kardashians or whatever. And they have these communicative community patterns and norms too. They get together, they analyze characters' motivations, they um, ask questions about you know, um, design choices that a director made, and they're having types of conversations that are not a one-to-one analog, but are more reflective than I think many people will see on at first sight when it comes to like analyzing Shakespeare. So instead of being like, you know, oh, these children don't appreciate great literature, what if we tapped into their ability to think about and have complex conversations about stories they engage with every day and see if you can create kind of a sluice way to whatever, you know, sort of curriculum that you're kind of working through and then bring that in and honor that knowledge mm-hmm. and honor that expertise that they have in a different field and find those sort of intersections. Um, Arthur Appleby, who's a curriculum theorist who I love, says that instead of thinking about curriculum as knowledge and skills, we should think about it as a series of conversations that we want our students to be able to engage with after they leave our class. And I love that idea of putting these different bodies of knowledge in conversation with each other as a way to honor them. Yeah, I I really think like, you know, what we're talking about, you know, there's there's this concept of just like, what if we had, if, if we continue to force what we're trying to do in our current model, it's never going to fit, right? And, and so I think, mm. like you said earlier, it's redefining what our perceptions are. So if, if we sure. can come back and say, like, well, what is success, right? What, what, what is this supposed to look like? I know that I've shared, uh, you know, in, in this story before, my, my wife, uh, she's a bilingual teacher, and they were learning something. They were working on something in her classroom. Uh, in, in a social science classroom. So she was pushing in and providing support and they were uh, doing an, uh, an activity around the Alamo. And there was this young man from Mexico. He, he came in and so they were asking like for them to write about it. Well, he wrote about it. His knowledge that he brought with him from Mexico, which is a very different narrative, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you know taught in, in traditional American classrooms. Mm-hmm. And the teacher was furious. This is not what was in the textbook. And he was like, no, no, it wasn't. But this is my understanding. This is the knowledge that I have. And he, he was told like, well, you, you failed the assignment because you didn't utilize the textbook as support. And so it's like, what are you telling the student, right? That the textbook the, the information in there is more valuable than the information that he's bringing in with him. Like, w- like, is that the message that we want to send? And so <laughs> it, it's just, it's very interesting. Once we start breaking that mold and saying, well, what do grades really look like? What is the purpose of grades? What, what, what is the concept of success? Um, you know, as another example, I, my daughter, she's about to graduate from high school. I, I was oh, at her honors assembly. Thank oh, you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I was at her honors assembly last night. Now she goes to a massive school, right? Mm-hmm. 5,000 kids or so. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. huge, huge school. And so, you know, you, you have about a thousand kids in every grade level. 
So last night wow. we're at our honors assembly and I mean, the kids that are receiving awards, I mean, might, you know, they're like, oh, I received a five on all of these different AP math class. Like what? Like you got a five in AP Cal? Like I took the class just to say I took an AP class. Like, I think I got a one. Like, <laughs> I did not touch any AP math. Or <laughs> it's so, I mean, it's easy to sit there and you're like, Gee, like this is impressive. But of course, you know, the, 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 uh, the educator in me, right. The, the, uh, the investigator in me starts to come out and I, and I asked my daughter, I said, how many kids are here? It's like, I don't know, dad, like 150, 200 kids. I said, yeah. Like, where's the other 800? Mm -hmm. What do you, Mm -hmm. what do you mean dad? And I said, well, yeah, like, this is impressive. If you took a snapshot of this, you got 150, 200 kids rocking it out, being amazing. That is impressive. That is like the size of my entire school. But you also have 800 other kids who are not sitting in this auditorium right now because they don't fit the model of what the school is right now defining as success. Because I didn't take an AP class, I don't get to come to honors night, right? Because I don't have a 4.3 GPA, I don't get to come here. Like, what are all the other ways that I was rocking it out? And and so that was my experience in school. I was amazing, quote, right? But I wasn't. I just fit the model. And when I realized that, it's a really humbling experience, right? To say, like, my friends, my peers who are in normal classes, they were just as talented just in other areas and probably areas that I would have struggled and I would have failed at. So it's like, how do we, if we really want that all, how do we reshape education to bring in those different knowledges, to bring in those different skills and really make sure that everybody can be successful? I love that point. I, um, hearing you say that it's, I was very, I was a great student in school, did the things did the clubs and made the grades and all that. But I didn't know how to study. I knew how to get like through the classes. I could memorize stuff for tests. Like I wasn't a great student. I just, I was, I knew how to play the game, mm-hmm. I guess. And I, I think about that. And there's a video I saw and I'm struggling to remember who I'll find the link though. So that way we can include it. And it's students who are being funneled through a system. They're on a conveyor belt. And you see some of them going out to industry, some of them going to university, and then some of them are just dropping off and you don't see. And so it's just when you watch it, it really makes you think of where are those other 800 students where we've got the 10, 15 percent of the class. So what's happening to the other 85, 90 percent of students? Why aren't we celebrating them? They all have something probably that they can that they've been successful at. And when are they getting that recognition and that acknowledgement? And so I, I love that you bring that up because so much of success is still attached to these high numbers that are kind of mm. arbitrary or man-made. <laughs> and it's, there are so many other things. And there's a, um, I think it's the Coalition for College Access. They have a portfolio-based application system that doesn't, it de-emphasizes the numbers. You can still include your scores, your GPA but they are really heavy on what you have done to, in terms of school, you create your portfolio and then also your community. And so it's just, I really think that shift of how are you contributing to the good of your school, of your community, and then also learning because learning is still important. How we uh, determine if you've learned or not, or what you've learned and what's important, we still need to figure out. But I see tiny glimpses of hope where there are these shifts being made of, 
valuing things beyond success, but I agree with you that we still have a ways to go and sharing that there are multi dimensions to success, not just top percent. Yeah. And, and, and I think that it's a scary realization that the map is not the territory, that these scores and these metrics and these measurements that we've devised to calculate and to group and sort aren't as real as we think they are. Mm -hmm. And when you take that map away, I think people kind of freak out, even if we're every teacher that I know is pointing to the map and they're like, this is not leading us to the right place. The fear of losing it, I think, is much scarier than the fear of going to the wrong place, because as a system, education isn't really sure where to go because of we've been following that map for so long. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting, like even thinking about like from like that sort of number quantitative um, perspective that like the incentive structure is set up where kids will just are programmed to be externally, sorry, extrinsically motivated. And like, I know that personally I have felt frustration and I have many colleagues that have too, that it's like, Oh, like why do kids only care about grades? Well, because the system is set up to only reward them and incentivize grades. Exactly. So, you know, um, uh, years and years ago, I had people push me when I, you know, was complaining about that. And it, it really was a really clarifying moment where it's like, well, of course, the kids only care about the scores because they've been conditioned to. Um, and it's, I've had some moments of kind of like, shared frustration with my students in class where my students are like, you know, I had, a, we had an end of the year Socratic seminar. And it was like this beautiful conversation. Um, like one of those like uplifting moments that you have as a teacher. And, you know, at the end of class, I was talking to one of my students and um, she was just, she was an incredible young, young woman. And she was like, Mr. Ella, this class was like, so, was so great. And I learned so much. I just wish I didn't get like a B plus. And I just was like, ah, oh, like that was the thing that kind of like, and, and I was like, and I, and I, I was like, so I wish I didn't have to give grades. I really, you know, wish that I did it. And I, you know, I'm on this ungrading journey right now too, to te to de-emphasize those and give students opportunities to, to not do that. But like, no matter how much we can bend and flex within the system, that system still exists. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, going back to that map and territory conundrum, it's, it's a challenge. It, it really kind of creates this contradiction or paradox where even if you're a teacher trying to push the envelope, that envelope still is kind of there. And it, it really stinks to, I guess, experience that and to know that the students do and that I can't individually fix it. So you know, it did lead to a really good conversation with that student about the limitations of school and the impossibility of, of a number or a letter defining, you know, your experiences. Yeah. I think you're bringing up that great point of why, I don't know, maybe maybe there's this like uh, continuum, right? There's this mm -hmm. point where this is what we do, right? If you spend any time on on Twitter or those other spaces, it's like, yes, right? Like break the system, fight back, push back, yes. go to conferences and, you know, we're at a workshop and we're all fired up and then you're right. But when we, it sounds great, but mm -hmm. the reality is like, if that gets taken away, like, what, what do I do? I, I don't know how to operate in this other space. Um, yeah. And, and I don't like, so if you came to this show to get answers, I, it's not answers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. You got lots of good questions. Yeah, I'm yeah. good at the questions. <laughs> like if, if we had the answers, like we, we'd be doing something completely like, but yeah, it's just, you're right. There's this kind of catch 22. Like we know what we should be doing, but we don't have enough, I guess, experience or, or situations like that. But I, and I'm, I'm wondering. To be honest, there, I, I'm a person who's like, it has to happen somewhere. 
right? I mean, yes, within yeah. our confines of our own educational system, it doesn't seem to work. But, you know, we talk about uh, places like, you know, like Sweden and Finland. And you're like, but they're, they're doing amazing things. And I don't know if you guys saw there was um, uh, a Zac Efron, right? Like, I know it's strange to mention his name in this, but <laughs> there was a Netflix special like that. It was, I don't know, like eight episodes long. He traveled around the world. But in one of them, he was in Costa Rica and he was visiting a school and they just did school differently. Like there was no it wasn't like, oh, you're five. That means you're in kindergarten. You're eight. That means like, it, like no, like here's what we're learning today. And we come to school and here's like kind of this focused on this skill. But I get to approach it in different ways and learn about it in different ways. And, you know, you might have a seven year old next to a 12 year old kind of learning that concept and learning that skill together. It was just vastly different. And so mm -hmm. to say, like, we can't operate, I just, I, I'm wondering if we were to step outside of our comfort zones, right? And maybe if there's a company out there right now that's listening to this and wants to sponsor, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> for us to go travel and visit. I mean, we will bring our knowledge back. We promise. Uh, hint, hint, hint. <laughs> totally. But like, I, I really do. I think like if we stepped outside of what we know, Right. Mm -hmm. like, you're right. We step outside of that into the unknown and there is nothing there. It's scary. But what if we stepped out into something else that has already been developed? Maybe it wouldn't be so scary. And that way, when we came back, we could break that down and try something different with something. new. It makes me think of um, one of my concepts that I brought in was innovation. And I'm going to kind of like go off with that because I also use a lot of design thinking in my work. And so I'm going to pair those together. But it's, yeah, you don't know what you don't know, but there are all these wild ideas that we can have. And so instead of stopping and saying, oh, that can't happen because the red tape, the confines that we have, seeing what could be and thinking, why not? Like, if we just tried this, if we just put this out there, what is it we need to do? And I, don't, I guess really we can just encourage people to, to speak up, teachers, share with principals, principals with superintendents. With, uh, with board of ed, you know, whoever you can share with everybody those wild ideas, because eventually maybe enough of the wild ideas being shared would lead to uh, someone taking a chance. And it's kind of um, that lone nut video. Have y'all seen that with a guy who's dancing in the field? And then it's like, that's, oh, yeah. that's the lone nut. And people <laughs> don't really want to follow him, but it's the first follower yep. people will follow. So as soon as he gets someone else to dance with him, then more people will come along. And so it's, we, I'm sure we can find a couple of lone nuts out there and we just need to help build the following and seeing what could be. I, I do think that it is easy to get trapped in this stance of critique and to only look at all of the issues and problems that exist and to, to pick at them and point them out. And at some point, there has to be a level of innovation, of imagination, of recreation, um, to bring about new ideas, new systems, new theories that can change things. And I think that's something that I'm really passionate about is, is by being like an aware and pragmatic optimist, like to not let those things weigh you down, but, but to not also kind of ignore them in this toxic positivity kind of way. And I'd say that um, if, I, if I could bring in the, the book that um, Kayla and I co-authored with uh, Julie Stern um, and Krista Ferraro, um, Learning That Transfers, it's all about that. It's thinking about how we can think about our discipline differently and think about how concepts are really what we want to help orient our students learning towards and use to organize curriculum. So instead of, of facts, 
which can be memorized and regurgitated, or discrete, you know, decontextualized skills, which are, are sort of a, a way for us to kind of water down the complexity of teaching and learning to just like, oh, I'll just have my kid, you know, make art and that's creativity and that will transfer to them doing it in history class. It's, it's a lot more complex than that, unfortunately, as much as I do love art and creativity. Um, and it's about thinking about concepts and how we can. So for instance, like in my class, instead of teaching, you know, my class being guided by, well, I really want my students to read like this novel that I feel like is like the old school, like approach to English language arts. And then it, it sort of evolved into, okay, well, I'm going to teach my kids, you know, critical thinking skills and analysis. Um, but it's difficult to transfer those abstract kind of ideas because students have to have some understanding of the content that they are analyzing or making sense of. So now, like if I read a novel, I'm not focused on my kids being like, oh, like I learned about Macbeth or I practiced my analytical thinking skills. We have a conversation about power, ambition, greed, empathy, and morality. And if you want to think about relevant concepts to make sense and navigate our current you know, political dumpster fire discourse, having an understanding of how those things interact and bump up against each other as a way to evaluate how effective or moral a leader is, that is, I think, a, a learning and understanding that can transfer. Um, and additionally, we also kind of think about, okay, well, what directorial decisions were made if you're going to like view the play or, or see the movie. The last one that came out with Denzel was fantastic, by the way, if you guys haven't seen it. And, you know, how did they use gesture? How did they use vocalics? How did they create and curate an environment? And those become different ways to convey and communicate meaning. So those big ideas of thinking about, you know, what are, what do these stories mean? And then how is that meaning conveyed? Thinking about it conceptually transfers to future situations. And that that's like a quick preview of how it looks within my English language arts course. But um, the rest of the members on our team, um, Kayla um, working in math, think about what does curriculum look like when it's structured conceptually and how can that lead to transfer? So I, I, do you ever do a thing like, uh, you know, with Pinesaw and Fabuloso for like out, out, damn spot like oh <laughs> <laughs> like which which is a better cleaning product yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I, you know of course one of my, my thoughts and i, I know I, I say this a lot in my different spaces but i, I find it fascinating like we're, we're sitting here and having this conversation mm-hmm. uh, i know that you know the the people that listen to my show i'm assuming you know based on what I'm, I, I learn about you that the people who listen to your show there i don't think there's a lot of arguments about this it's like yes yes this is this is what we need to do um but it's finding ways to then say okay well if that that dominant narrative out there is something different and, and we continue to push back on it and and i think one of the things that we have to do is figure out how to do that, right? Which I know earlier I, I mentioned about kind of finding your voice. How are you going to do that? Uh, you know, kind of share and, and showcase this work that needs to be done, right? We we have voice, right? We, we can sit here and we can talk. I know some of my teachers are like, nope, absolutely not, never. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm really good with the pen, right? I'll sit down yeah. and I'll write or, or, or I'll, I'll do a blog or articles. But, you know, kind of finding that voice. Um, but I... I, I I think just kind of bringing, at least on my end, kind of bringing that full circle to your purpose is that there's a reason why education is why we're still having this conversation. Because yeah. the reality is that if what we're doing works, like we wouldn't still be having this conversation, right? These so-called reforms have just been repackaged, um, mm-hmm. made to look For pretty. Sure. 
um, you know, as an attempt and right. And, and I've said this before, you know, that a lot of what education is, is it's designed to continue perpetuating these systems, right? Like you can't have wealth if you don't have poverty, right? You can't have. Mm -hmm. and, and so having these discussions threatens that, right? It, it threatens that status quo and, and it makes people very uncomfortable. And so when you begin doing this work, you have to be prepared for um, and expect the pushback because you, you're, you're really going to challenge not only just people's personal beliefs and attitudes, but there's an entire system that they have developed that says this, like, like Kayla and I were talking about earlier, right? Like I was amazing at school, right? I like, <laughs> yeah, because I fit that mold. But if, if everybody was great, I don't stand out anymore. And that's really scary for a lot of people. And I don't even just mean your high school top 10, I'm talking global, right? Like, policies and yeah. politicians and structures. Um, and so I think, again, knowing who you are, knowing your purpose, knowing your, 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 uh, you know, your mission and your vision, when that push comes, you'll be able to ground yourself and say, no, I, I don't apologize for speaking my truths. I, I'm not going to waver and say, eh, maybe like, no, this is, this is who I am. This is what I believe because it's going to come. And so if we really want change to happen, if we really want to start challenging that narrative and, and really making things change, that is where I think finding out how you can do it and, and grounding yourself, we're going to finally be able to make this change happen. I would love, I would love for this work that we're doing now to be no longer needed, right? Push me out hmm. of a need, like, <laughs> because it's a great thing. Like I would love for it. Be, like, yeah, Charles, of course. What are you talking about? That's what we already do. I would love for that to happen. Absolutely. Sorry. As I, um, not that anyone listening can see me as I talk or as we speak, I do notes. And so I was drawing our grounded in purpose pictures. Um, <laughs> but I, I agree. It's the, like, make it to where we don't have to be here, like force us out of a, a job situation, you know, <laughs> like if things you know, make it to where I, we need to think about something new. Um, and it's, yeah, it's these systems and it's each person finding a way that they can support. But I think you touched on something um, that resonates with me is finding out what that can be and feeling confident in it. And I know a lot of teachers right now who do have beliefs and ideas for change. And because of just how education is kind of a hotbed, they're, they're scared. Like there are teachers right now who are just... They're scared to say the wrong thing, um, to pull up the wrong article, and they don't know, and there's no set of rules anymore. It's because there are so many beliefs and opinions and things, and I think that has been very challenging, um, but is leading more teachers to show there needs to be a change purely because they're using their feet to walk out. And it's that, I think that will be a big indicator to someone when, unfortunately, we keep having really great educators who just can't and don't want to take the stress of it anymore. And so maybe it's not grounded in purpose, but it will at least be an indicator or a flag like, hey, something has to give. What's currently happening isn't sustainable. It's not productive. It's not beneficial. And what are we going to do about it? And I hope that getting there will almost be a reset and maybe not even a reset that implies that you're doing the same thing, but just booting it back up, but maybe an, an overhaul, a, a rethinking, a reconfiguring, like we have to do something that will work for all. And, but just to tap onto that grounding and purpose, 
I think that everyone needs to find their way to do that. And that's really meaningful. And it's unfortunate how scared some educators and teachers are right now that having a purpose could then be vilified. Yeah. And I think it speaks to a tension that has come up on a lot of our recent episodes um, in that as an individual teacher or educator or administrator um, or instructional coach in Kayla's uh, case, what can you do to push back against those systems, to reimagine them, to critique them um, in a way that is sustainable? in a way that will not burn you out and remove another person from the system that is needed to change it. Um, And that I think is something that every teacher who has a purpose to create more socially just education struggles with, you know, what does it look like to care for oneself enough to not burn out while also continuing to do the work that is purpose giving and is needed to change the systems. And, um, I, th- again, this is not the episode for answers, folks, um, <laughs> but it, cause it is certainly it is a struggle and it is a, a journey. Um, and like, what does it look like to, you know, um, fortify yourself in a way that is sustainable? Um, and it's I think it looks different for different people. But I do think tapping into or rediscovering if you've lost it, that purpose can be a way to do that. Or even if it is a challenge, if you are grasping onto that purpose, um, I think that that can be a lot more helpful because it's not just, I'm doing this because I want my, you know, scores to increase or I want students to get better grades, which I think can only sustain you for so long. Um, And it's a reconnection with, you know, I want my students, I want to help my students find their purpose. I want my students to, um, have a love of learning. I want my students to, you know, go out and help others. Um, that I think is a, a much more sustaining mission and vision than the the grammar of schooling that has been guiding us for a long time, you know, since we've been in autopilot in, in the ed reform years. Hmm. Man, have you guys seen Abbott Elementary? Uh, yes. Yes. Right. I've so only there, seen there's... the first episode. Oh my God. <laughs> Kayla. <laughs> I know. I'm Stop under doing your dissertation and, and watch <laughs> Abbott Elementary, okay? Yeah, yeah. Reprioritize. You can do the dissertation later. <laughs> but, I mean, there, there's that quote in there, right? That like, we care too much to burn out, right? And yes. So yes. it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like we, it's easy to burn out. Like, and, and I struggle when, when like stuff like that. And you're like, yeah, you want to grab it and run to Twitter. And like, but I, I always try to like think through it. And it's like, yeah, it's, oh, it's easy to say that. Like, Oh, so you're saying I'm burnt out? I don't care enough? Like, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. But mm-hmm. you're right. Like, if if we're going to do this work, we do have to find that balance and, and figure out how do we take care of ourselves. Um, and I know, I, I know, our time is running out. So I just this, to be honest, is, is one of the things that like this helps me to be honest. So I want to say thank you, thank you for giving me you know an opportunity to connect with you guys and like knowing like yeah, there are other like-minded people out there and we can have this conversation and i think a lot of times you know as we're doing this work it's scary because it it seems lonely but Mm -hmm. you know right here it 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 signals that there are at least at least three like-minded people i'm sure there's (laughs) (laughs) but thank you i just wanted to say thank you oh it was so great connecting and um with you and having this conversation so yeah thanks for agreeing to kind of partner up yeah, thanks. Thanks for, for coming together and doing this sort of combined podcast. And, and I do think, to your point, 
being in dialogue with other people that share your struggles and your mission and your vision for what education is and what it could be, um, is, it is, it is affirming and it, it is sustaining. And that if anyone who's struggling, if you can find somebody, you know, avoid the potentially toxic, you know, lunchroom conversation and find somebody who you can talk to, um, in a way that will lift you up and fortify you. So, so. I, I know before we, we started the show, uh, we, we were talking about how like we launched it and I'm realizing as we're wrapping up that we had no idea how we were going to close this. <laughs> but, That's a wrap folks. <laughs> so if you don't mind, I'll ask you guys a question that I always ask my guests, like go for so it. People listening right now, you know, they're probably listening and say, Hey, these, these people sound phenomenal. How can they find you? How, they, how could they connect with you? I know you mentioned the book. Uh, you also have a show, but how, how else can they connect with you? Um, Twitter is an easy way to connect. I'm at Mrs. Kayla Duncan, and we have our website, www.learningthattransfers.com, where you can connect with us, other team members, see all of our resources and things that we've put out there. Uh, in terms of learning that transfers, we have a Facebook group, and it's called Learning That Transfers, and I think we do have a Twitter community. That's new, um, mm -hmm. and they're all there, yeah. So those are some quick ways to connect with a team and then with myself and Trev. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, you can follow me at Mr. Elio says, and um, we also have a um, series of courses that we're doing on um, curriculum design for all the, all different disciplines. And you can find that information uh, on our website that Kayla mentioned, which is uh, learning the transfers.com. And what about you, Charles? People yeah. are coming from our side. Sure. Uh, so you can find me all over the place. Um, uh, definitely on Twitter. That's my favorite place to be at underscore CW Consulting. Um, huge fan of Twitter. Follow me, I'll follow you back. Connect with me. I will connect back with you. And then, you know, in all the spaces, right? The the, the LinkedIn. I have an Instagram page. I have no idea what I'm doing in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I even have a TikTok, right? Like, I don't have anything on there. I just grabbed my handle. At some point, something will be there. But uh, yeah, there's the CW Consulting website. I host the Counter Narrative Podcast. And of course, I'm also the co-host of Inside the Principal's Office. It is a bi-monthly uh, show for leaders, not just principals, but leaders from all over the world. Uh, so lots of different avenues to connect. And uh, I was going to say, I know you mentioned the book. So if you guys would be willing, uh, you know, we wrote a book. Uh, under inside the principal's office. So I would love to not only get a copy in your hands, but maybe get a copy or two in your listeners' hands. Maybe we'll find some way to do a promo for the show and I'll send yeah. something out to them as that well. That sounds beautiful. We can we yeah. get that in the show notes. We can awesome. do a book swap. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate you guys. It's been a blast. Yeah, thanks. thanks so much. Thanks.